you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Um, this week I was uh, away on uh, vacation visiting family and so I uh, decided to pull one out of the archives. So if you've been with us for uh, a number of years, you may have heard this sermon before um, or something very similar, uh, but I trust uh, that it will be edifying nonetheless. So uh, we're in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, uh, verses 10 through 17 tonight. Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of, the, the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, beginning here in Ephesians 6.10, Paul is, is winding down this letter to the church at Ephesus and making a final appeal to this church for their continued faithfulness in light of the cosmic realities that are in play in the world. And so to encourage their, their faithfulness, he says to them in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And from that point on, we might say that the, the rest of the passage down through verse 17 or perhaps even on down through verse 18 or 20 is essentially an unpacking of the why and the how of this command to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And we'll look at those two things, the why and the how, as we, as we go along and consider from this passage the armor of God. But before we do that, we ought to give some consideration to the words of verse 10. The exhortation given is be strong, or it could be rendered in the, the passive, which would be be strengthened or be made strong. This latter rendering, the, the passive, be strengthened or be made strong, would fit in with Paul's prayer that he had previously prayed for these people back in chapter 3, verse 16 and following, where he prayed that the Father would grant them according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. His prayer there was that they would be strengthened. And so either way we choose to take it here, whether we would choose to translate it as be strong or be strengthened. We should note the source of the strength. Where does the strength come from? It comes from the Lord. We're supposed to be strengthened in the Lord 
and in the power of his might. And we need to keep that in mind as we continue on in considering this passage. This strength comes from the Lord and not from us. This is not a locker room motivational speech, if you will. When I was in high school, I, uh, I did play one year of football. It wasn't very good, but I played. And I remember one, uh, one time our, our coach was giving us this, uh, this pep talk there in the locker room, and uh, he told a story about the uh, escape artist, Harry Houdini. And I don't know if the story is true or not, but the story was that Harry Houdini was locked up in this room, and he was trying to get out, trying to get out, couldn't get out. Finally, he just kind of leaned forward on the door in desperation, and the door swung open. And the moral to the story was that door was only locked in his mind. And he said, we're going out of here, and we're kicking the door open. And so, you know, everybody, as they walked out the door, I guess was supposed to kick the door or did kick the door or whatever. But, but this, is, this is not what's going on here. This is not, this is not a, a pep talk. We're going out there. We're going to do this or whatever in, in our own strength. We're strong. We can do it. This is not what Paul says. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. There's no sense of pride, no sense of self-sufficiency here in Paul's words about spiritual warfare. Paul is speaking to those who know that in and of themselves they are weak. And these people know so much that they are weak that they've abandoned every hope of saving themselves or attempting to be good enough for God. And they have fled to the Lord Jesus Christ to save them from their sins and to give them a righteousness that they could never earn for themselves. And so we as Christians should be the last of all people to think that if anything good is going to be done, it's because of us. It's not because of us. If any good is going to be done, it's because we're actually being strengthened in the Lord and in the power of His might. And so... We need to remember this as we, as we work through the passage. This is, this is not about us, ultimately, and our, our strength. This is about us being strengthened by the Lord. As helpful as it is, though, to be reminded that this is the Lord's strength that we need, this is one of those things that I think we can all agree sounds really good in theory. right? We need, we need to be strengthened by the Lord. Right? We can't do this on our own. But the next question is, how? How do we do this? Because if we honestly analyze our own spiritual abilities, we know that, that we're weak, we know that we need the Lord's strength, but how does this actually work out, practically speaking? Well, that's what Paul tells us in this passage. He mentions it in verse 11 and picks up the idea again down in verse 13. Put on the full armor of God. That's how we're to be strengthened in the Lord is, is to make use of these great spiritual resources which the Lord has given to us. We're to use what the Lord has provided for us in the strength which the Lord gives. We're to, to be stewards, as it were, of these resources. We, we appropriate them. We put them into use. But God is the one who gives them to us. And God is the one who gives us strength to use them. And so, broadly speaking, this is the how we are to be strong in the Lord, is to put on the full armor of God. And Paul further expands on this how in verses 14 and following, as he lists out these, these various pieces of the armor of God, which we're familiar with. But before Paul expands on the how of being strong in the Lord, 
He tells us the why. The why. Why are we supposed to be strong in the Lord? The reason is because of the words of verse 11, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And he elaborates further on this thought in verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We catch another glimpse of the why down in verse 13, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. This is, this is the why, right? Because we have this spiritual battle that we are facing. And the only way we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil is if we're strengthened in the Lord and if we put on this full armor of God. And so you notice that, uh, that this language of, of stand firm, or depending on the translation, it could be just stand pops up several times here in this passage. We see it in verse 11, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You see it again in verse 13, having done everything to stand firm. See it again at the beginning of verse 14, stand firm, therefore. And also in verse 13 is this talk of resisting or withstanding in the evil day. When is the evil day? It's right now. It's right now. And the implication is clear. There's a fight that is going on. If you are a Christian, like it or not, you're in the fight. You're in a fight because the devil is scheming against you, and he has a lot of help. He has a lot of demons who are called here the rulers, the powers, the world, forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's the why. That's why we need the strength of the Lord so that we can stand firm in this struggle. This is not a struggle that is on the human plane of existence. It is a struggle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. Therefore, it requires spiritual help. One writer put it this way. He said, if we think that the Christian life is simply a matter of human effort or exertion, we have misread the nature of the campaign. Only spiritual weapons are of value in this deadly struggle. And the word that is rendered here as, as struggle, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, is a word that was often used to, to describe wrestling, or if you're from where I'm from, wrestling, right? This is an in-your-face, street fight kind of thing, right? Masterminding the whole thing is a scheming devil who doesn't fight fair. Now, if we're in Christ, Satan cannot snatch us from the Father's hand. He can only do to us what God will allow him to do, as we see in the book of Job. But that doesn't mean that resistance on our part is going to be easy. Peter refers to the devil in 1 Peter 5.8 as the one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. Right? This, is, this is a real spiritual fight. And so if we're going to do any good in this fight... We need to be strengthened by the Lord. How do we do it? We have to put on this full armor of God. And so this is both armor that comes from God and is given to us, and at least in some sense, it is armor that is used by God himself. It's armor that comes from God and armor that is used by God. Now, I realize at first glance that may sound very strange to say that this is armor that is used by God, but I open tonight by reading from 
Isaiah 59. And in Isaiah 59, verses 15 through 17, this is what we, we read there. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation was on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. And so this is armor that, that comes from God, and in some sense, armor that at least in those two instances, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, has been used by God. And certainly, our Lord Jesus Christ utilized the sword of the Spirit when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. So this is armor that comes from God, an armor that is used by God. And thus, in seeking to obey this command, to put on the full armor of God, we're being imitators of God, as Paul had commanded in Ephesians 5.1, where he said, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We put on this armor. This is armor that God himself has girded himself with. And so, what does this look like? Well, the famous part of this passage we have in verses 14 through 17, six particular parts of this armor that are mentioned. We're to have our loins girded with truth. We are to put on the breastplate of righteousness, to have our feet shod in the preparation of the gospel of peace, to take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So let's, let's look at each of the, the pieces of this armor in turn. First comes the, the girding of the loins with truth. And Paul seems to be alluding here to the Septuagint's rendering of the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah 11, 4 through 5, which says, With righteousness shall he be girded around his waist and with truth bound around his sides. And so just as truth characterizes Christ our Lord, truth is also to characterize us as his people. This means doing what Paul said back in chapter 4, where he said, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We put aside the lies, the falsehood, the deception, we speak truth. It also means standing firm in the truth of the gospel message, which is to say that we have to be continually feeding on God's truth and allowing God's truth to permeate our brains, to permeate our hearts, and to permeate our lives as well. This is the way that we are to have our loins girded. And this image of, of girding one's loins signifies getting, getting ready for something. The, the image uh, that uh, the biblical writers are sometimes using when they say, gird up, gird up your loins is this image of a man wearing a, a cloak or whatever, and when he had some serious work to do or if he had to run or whatever, he'd pull up the, uh, the backside of it and tuck it, tuck it into his belt and... He was, he was getting ready, getting ready to work, getting ready to do something, uh, and so trying to get his clothing arranged so that he could do what he needed to do. And so the point is, is that you're tying up the loose ends of your clothing so that they don't come unraveled or get in the way while you're fighting. And thus living truthfully, without guile, speaking truthfully, without falsehood, and keeping the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ, fixed in our minds and hearts is the way that we prepare ourselves for this spiritual battle. This keeps us from coming unraveled, as it were. 
If we're lying and living hypocritically and failing to stand in the truth of the gospel, then we're in no shape for this fight. There's a good chance that we'll get tripped up even in the opening maneuvers before the battle actually begins. And so Paul says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. We need to speak the truth. We need to live the truth. We need to have the truth in our minds and be grounded in the truth. If we're not there to start with, things are going to go badly before the thick fighting even comes. And the second item that Paul mentions is the, the breastplate of righteousness. Now, we've heard from Isaiah 59 that this is one of those items that the Lord himself put on. And thus we're called to imitate him in this. Now, what does this mean in our case to have on the breastplate of righteousness? Well, again, this is the armor of God, the armor that comes from God. And thus, any true righteousness that we have is a gift from God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're reminded uh, of this by those wonderful words in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The good news of the cross and the empty tomb is that Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree and then he gives us his righteousness. As Paul would say in Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised because of our justification. And so we see we receive this justification, this righteousness by, by faith, by trusting in Christ. And then as believers, we're to live out the implications of being justified by faith. And one implication, now that we have received the righteousness of Christ and have been made new creatures in Christ, is that now we're supposed to start living self-controlled, righteous, and godly lives. Paul had spoken earlier in this letter when he had given the command in Ephesians 4.25 that we're to put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Just as we're to put on this new self, which has been created in righteousness, so Paul here speaks of putting on the breastplate of righteousness. We're supposed to live now as those who are justified. Therefore, that means we are to live in a just and righteous way. Unless we put on the breastplate of righteousness by clinging to the righteousness of Christ, which is ours through faith in him, and though we never ground our salvation in righteous deeds which we do, nevertheless, we do them anyways. The good works do not save us, but we walk in them nevertheless, because God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in them, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. The righteousness of Jesus is, therefore, what, what keeps us safe. It's a, it's a breastplate, right? It covers, covers the vitals, as it were and is an unassailable piece of armor. And the more that we cling to the righteousness of Jesus, the more and more we ourselves live righteously in this world. The more that we abide in Christ, the more we are able to bear fruit for his sake. So put on the breastplate of righteousness. Lean more and more into the righteousness of Christ. Lean upon the righteousness of Christ and abide in him. And thus, therefore, bear the fruit of righteousness in imitation of him. So we have our loins girded with truth and we put on the breastplate of righteousness. And then in verse 15, Paul moves on to speak 
of having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And this, too, is language which is, is drawn from Isaiah, this time Isaiah 52.7, where we are told how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. And you can hear the echoes of Isaiah 52 here in Isaiah chapter 6. You can hear the, the similarities of the language. Isaiah speaks of the beautiful feet of a messenger who brings good news, who announces peace. And here in Ephesians, we read that we are to have our feet shod in the readiness of the gospel, the readiness of the good news of peace. And this means a couple of different things. One, it means that we take the message of the gospel and appropriate it to ourselves. In other words, we understand what the gospel means, we understand what its implications are, and then we apply it to every, aspects of, every aspect of our lives and live it out from day to day. We understand that now because of Jesus, we are at peace with God, we are at peace with the people of God, and paradoxically, this message of peace with God also now means that we're in a fight. Right? This is what Paul's talking about here. We're in a fight with Satan. We're in a, part, a fight with these ungodly forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're in a fight with our sin. We're in a fight with the world. Applying the gospel to every aspect of our lives makes us ready for the defensive aspects of this war, fighting against these spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, and it also makes us ready for the offensive nature of this war as well. Because if we truly do this, if we truly apply and appropriate the gospel of peace to ourselves and understand it and what it means for ourselves, then we're going to understand what a great and glorious message it is. And this then encourages and inspires us to become messengers of this gospel of peace announcing to those who are at war with God the terms by which they may have peace with God and encourage them to switch sides while there is still time to do so. And if you think back to earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul tells us that this is actually what Christ has already done. Back in, in chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, Paul told us there how Christ is our peace how Christ has put to death the enmity between Jew and Gentile and has reconciled both to God in one body through the cross. The message of the gospel is a message of peace to all who will receive it. And thus Paul can say of Christ, Ephesians 2.17, He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. And so when we're in the thick of the battle, and there are evil forces at work against us, and our own conscience is reminding us that we are filthy and sinful and unworthy of anything other than hell, this is the time to use the gospel of peace in a defensive fashion, right? We want to take the gospel and apply it and appropriate it to ourselves. And so we acknowledge that apart from Christ, uh, all of those things would be true, that nothing uh, there's nothing good in us. We would be dead. We would be condemned. But then comes the gospel of peace. And the gospel of peace tells us this in the words of Colossians 2, 13 to 15. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him 
having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And so we want to be prepped and ready for our own benefit, for our own good, so that we have this precious message of the gospel of peace ready to apply to ourselves at a moment's notice. There is, as it were, this this defensive posture of the gospel of peace in which we can appropriate it to ourselves and remember that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No condemnation for those who are in him. And then there's this offensive posture of the gospel of peace. And this is when we take this message and offer of peace with God to the enemies of God so that new conquests may be made in the field of battle for the glory of God. And so in order to do this well, we have, to, we have to be prepared, right? That's what he says right here. Having uh, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. There's some preparation that needs to be done. This means that we need to be steeped in the gospel. We need to pray that we can share the gospel with boldness. And in fact, if you read on down later in this chapter, this is, this is the very thing that Paul asks for. He asks for prayer that, uh, that he might be bold in making known the mystery of the gospel. And just, just think about this. Paul's, Paul's in prison at this point. When he's, when he's writing this letter, we might think, well, well, surely Paul doesn't need my prayers for boldness in preaching the gospel. He's an old veteran, right? He's an apostle. But still... Paul asks for prayer for, for boldness. And if Paul needs prayer to be bold in, and ready to, to share the gospel, how much more do we need prayer? Prayer for ourselves, prayer for others, to be ready to speak the gospel uh, that we may proclaim it boldly and fearlessly. So there's, there's preparation of the gospel of peace. We want to apply it to ourselves in our own time of need. We want to be also ready in a moment's notice to speak to the lost takes preparation. As Paul moves on there in verse 16, he says that we are to take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. It is said that in Roman times, a shield was, was big, about two and a half feet wide, about four feet tall, and therefore could cover most of the body. And in the warfare of that time, flaming arrows would be used. And these Flaming arrows would sometimes hit the shields and set them on fire. And thus, some soldiers would supposedly drop their shields and thereby would only increase their vulnerability. Now having no shield and flaming arrows still coming at them. And so, to counter, uh, counteract the effect of the flame, sometimes the shields would be treated with water in order to put out the flame. And Paul uses here this, this metaphor of fiery darts for any kind of satanic attack imaginable. Right? The fiery darts of the evil one, they can come in all kinds of ways. Temptation to open sin, temptation to subtle sin, temptation to doubt the word of God, temptation to believe things that the word of God says are false. Whatever it may be, It's a fiery dart that is launched from the enemy. And that's when, 
if we have any concern for our souls, we need to throw up the shield of faith and hang on for dear life. Don't drop the shield and run. Hold up the shield of faith because this is what extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil one. And oftentimes, as we've seen in this, uh, the way this warfare went down, oftentimes the shield itself would become endangered during the, the attack, right? And even so it is with us as believers. Oftentimes it's the shield itself that sets on fire first because faith comes under attack. And we shouldn't be surprised that Satan himself assaults us at this very point and attempts to cause us to doubt. And this was, uh, this was one of the points uh, that the, uh, the Scottish Presbyterian Samuel Rutherford uh, was getting at in his series of sermons called The, the Trial and Triumph of Faith. And he said this, he said that faith is more assaulted than any other grace. Satan shakes other graces, but this is winnowed between heaven and earth. And he basically says that, that just because your, your faith comes under attack, don't, don't conclude, therefore, that you're not a true believer because this is, this is what Satan is gunning for. He's, he's gunning for your faith. And uh, based on what we, what we see here in uh, Paul's usage of, of this metaphor and the, the way that warfare went down, this, was, this is what came under attack in the warfare as well, that the shield itself came under attack. And if the shield was abandoned, then all hope would be lost. And so we have to cling to Christ. We cling to the word of God and to the promises of God in faith. And we have to do this even when we don't understand the truth of Scripture Many times we have to, to rest in the fact that what God says is true, even if we can't understand quite actually how all the pieces fit together. And sometimes we have to hang on in faith, even when we feel that everything around us is coming unglued. Even then, and especially then, we have to take up the shield of faith. We have to hang on to the truth of what God says and recognize that we're not going to be out of range of Satan's fiery darts until we get to heaven, right? These, these darts are going to keep on being launched, and faith itself may sometimes be the first thing that is attacked. But we have to keep on hanging on. We have to take up the shield of faith, cling to the word of God and the truth of Christ. Now, in verse 17, Paul lists out two more pieces of this, this armory, the helmet and the sword. The helmet is obviously the, the helmet of salvation. If you're a Christian, you have this. Right? You have salvation. So, so put it on. What does that mean? It means that we recognize our current position in Christ and we draw strength and safety from the fact that we belong to him. We have been redeemed by Christ's precious blood and we have to rest and also fight in the confidence that this salvation is, is rightfully ours. The victory has been won. Christ has given us salvation. The bomb has been dropped on the kingdom of Satan when Christ died and rose again. And as the writer to the Hebrews puts it, Hebrews 2.14, through death Christ rendered powerless the devil and therefore has struck the death blow against the one that has the power of death. The war is not over, but the death blow has been struck. And so regardless of what 
the enemy may throw at us from here on out. Let's live and rest and fight with that helmet of salvation strapped on. We have to live in the light of the fact that Christ is victorious, and we as his people are also victorious. We're saved and we're safe if we're found in him. And finally, Paul says to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And just as in ancient times, a sword was useful for both offense and defense, just so it is with the word of God. The word of God is powerful for keeping us safe in battle, and it is also powerful for making new conquests. And thus we need to know the word of God and have it in our minds and in our hearts, both to keep us safe when temptation comes against us, and also to proclaim to the lost when God gives the opportunity. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, utilized this sword. Three times Satan came to him. Three times Christ said, it is written. And he drew on his knowledge of the word of God and combated the temptation with the word of God. And that likewise should be our cry when we are tempted. It is written. Christ had need of the scripture in such a moment. How much more do you and I have need of Scripture in such a moment? And again, the, the Word of God is not simply something that keeps us safe in a moment of temptation. The proclamation of the Word of God is the means that God uses to bring lost souls to himself. This is how the kingdom of God advances in the uttermost parts of the world. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. As Paul would say in Romans 10, How then will they call on him? in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And so we need to have our swords in hand to fight defensively when temptation comes against us. We need the truth of Scripture. And we need to fight offensively so as to present the truth of the gospel to those who are lost. We need to be ready, armed with this full armor of God so that Christ's kingdom may advance in the world and so that Christ's kingdom may advance in us as well. We don't lose ground and go backwards in the battle. Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against these rulers and authorities. And so, as we've seen this evening, this armor of God that Paul describes here is armor that is from God, and at least in part is armor that God himself has used. And at its essence, what it is, is it's a call for us to make use of the resources that God has given to us in Christ. If you, if you look through that, this list of these these six pieces of the Christian's armory, none of these things originate with us. They, they all come from God. These are all gifts of God to us. And so what we need to do then is to live in light of who we are in Christ so that we can fight against the devil and his minions both defensively and offensively and then emerge victorious at the end of the fight when as we're promised in Romans 16:20, that the God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So we know that Christ has already struck the death blow, and we know that the final and complete crushing of Satan is going to come when Christ 
comes again. And so may God strengthen us now in the fight, even as we seek to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize that we are weak, but you are mighty. Lord, we pray that we would be armed for the spiritual conflict with the weapons that you provide and that we would walk with you. We would not be fearful, but that we would trust in you every step of the way, that we would seek always to do what is right and honorable in your sight. And we pray that your spirit would strengthen us and help us. We pray that Christ would come soon so that Satan would indeed be crushed beneath our feet as you have promised. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.